There are some very important documents that connect with America's early history. And I have some questions this morning about three of those documents. I'm going to ask the questions anyone can answer. Just shout out the answer if you know it. The first question is, in what city was the Constitution signed? Philadelphia. Very good. What are the opening words to the preamble to the Constitution? We the people of the United States. That's right. How many men signed the Declaration of Independence? Fifty-six. Name, name the one man who signed the Declaration with the largest signature. John Hancock. Very good. Very bold thing. How many amendments are there to the Constitution? Twenty-seven. How many rights are there in the Bill of Rights? No, actually ten. And those ten Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Who wrote the Bill of Rights? James Madison. And then finally, name one of those ten rights that we have in the Bill of Rights. Okay, the right to bear arms. That's the second one. Isn't that interesting how that one always comes up? The right to bear arms. The very first one, I think, is a really important one for us, and that's freedom of religion, freedom of the press. All right. Those amazing documents were written by men, and they've been open to change during our 239-year history as a country. Not many people know, and I didn't before last week, that there have been 11,500-plus amendments to the Constitution that have been proposed. Only 27 have been approved. Since 1789, over 11,500 amendments have been proposed. So as great as those three documents are that I just quizzed you on, they are changeable documents. The Bible, however, was written thousands of years ago and has not been changed. It alone has the truth we need to live by. It alone has the principles that guide our lives and the specific commands that we are to obey. It alone gives us the means by which we can walk worthily day by day in very practical areas of our lives like our role as American citizens. How I conduct myself as a citizen is important to God. Please understand that. It's important to God. And it makes a difference in my testimony before a lost and dying world. My testimony before a morally decaying American society. We want to carefully examine what the Apostle Peter tells us by way of command and instruction about living a godly life as a citizen of the United States. And we're going to discover along the way that the Apostle Paul wrote two other passages that say the same thing. So this is really important. Let's look first of all at our true position as God's people. Verses 9 and 10 of Second of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Apostle Peter, led by the Spirit of God, makes it clear to us that as believers we are a holy nation unto God. God is our ruler. Not a president, not a king. God is our ruler. And the reason we've been declared as a holy nation of God's people, believers in Jesus Christ, is so that we could proclaim to the rest of the world who God is. And how awesome it is to know the mercy of God. Others living around the world, and especially here in America where we live, need to know that God loves them. They need to know that they can become the people of God as well. They need to know that they can have mercy in place of judgment. And those who've already received His mercy, whose lives have already been changed, God can use us to introduce the unbelievers to the truth about God. You see, when we know our true position, that we are temporarily here on planet Earth, we're headed for heaven, it can make a difference in the lives of those who are camped out as if this is all there is. And there are many people like that. Unfortunately, there are some people who profess to be Christians who kind of have that attitude. This is all there is. You've got to make the most of it. J.I. Packer, in the magazine Christianity Today back in 1985, a long time ago, wrote this, It is a paradox of the Christian life that the more profoundly one is concerned about heaven, the more deeply one cares about God's will being done on earth. Isn't that a great way to look at it? The more I understand how awesome it's going to be to be in heaven someday with God, the more I'm concerned about people around me here on planet earth. In the very opening verse of this book of First Peter, Peter addresses his letter to those who he calls aliens. We sang it earlier, we're just passing through. And if truly our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue in heaven, then we're not going to become too attached to possessions here. We're not going to become too enamored with the party life. Instead, we're going to focus on people and on the promises of God and the principles of God's Word. Our walk with God and our corporate witness as people who are part of Grace Fellowship Church should be our top priorities here in 2015. Peter talks about those priorities in verses 11 and 12. Notice, Beloved, I urge you as, notice, aliens and strangers, there's that phrase again, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Aliens and strangers... Those words have meaning, right? And what they mean is, this is not our home. Our home is heaven. By very nature of the meaning of those words, we are to live differently than everybody else lives. Our behavior is going to speak volumes about our view of life now 
as a holy nation and speak volumes about our view of heaven and what that's going to be to live with God forever. Our good deeds will also make an impact for good to those living around us. Right now they may mock us, but Peter is very clear that someday when Jesus comes back, they're going to have to answer for that mockery and they're going to realize those people who said they were Christians who were living around me, uh, watching their behavior and living godly lives, they were really transformed. I should have been one of them. We can make an impact if we live godly lives in front of them. Here's what this means practically. I think this is very clear. We have to listen to this and live it out then. It means that rather than fall into deep despair over this recent decision by our U.S. Supreme Court to allow gay marriage in all 50 states, that's going to be challenged, by the way, and rightfully so, but rather than fall into despair about that, what we need to do instead as God's people is we need to show others what godly marriages look like. They need to see that I love my wife and she loves me and that we are both committed to God in our marriage. And we're not giving up on marriage no matter what. And the result will be that some of them, not all, but some of them will come to people like you and me in our marriages where we're seeking to walk with God and they will say to us, how can I have a marriage like that? That's a better way to deal with the issue, isn't it? Or rather than complaining about people on government dole getting handouts at taxpayers' expense, we can instead give generously to our local churches and to Christian organizations that are doing a great job of meeting the needs of people who desperately have real needs. That's a better way. And certainly we ought to be concerned about the availability of abortion. But there's something else we can do. We can promote Christian adoption. We can urge people to take foster children into their home and provide a godly role model for those children in their home. That's a better way. We can be difference makers ourselves. And rather than complain about our elected officials and the lousy job we may think they're doing, we can instead pray for our leaders that they'll come to know Jesus as Savior if they don't already. And most of them don't, I would dare say. We can pray for them that they'll come to know the Lord. We can also use our voice and our vote to elect godly officials. And if God so leads us, we can become people who pursue elected office and make a difference with our lives. We simply cannot live like the rest of the world and expect to make a lasting impact on those around us. We can't possibly expect in that context to restore our nation to a place of blessing from the Lord. One man consulted his psychiatrist and said, I've been misbehaving, doctor, and my conscience is troubling me. The doctor said, so you want something that will help strengthen your willpower? He said, no, not really. I was thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. (laughs) And unfortunately, that's how some of us live. 
It's just easier to weaken my conscience than to have the power that God has placed in me as a believer to stand strong for Him and live for the Lord. We have that divine power living in us. And that divine power will enable us, as hard as it may seem, to live out the tough principle spelled out for us in verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. That is a tough principle. A lot of people, including some professing Christians, have real issues with that word submit. But that's what it says. That's what Peter spells out here as a principle. Submit to every human institution. He goes on to say whether that's to uh, the king as one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Simply put, we are under a divine obligation to be submissive to our appointed leaders, our elected officials. There's a theological truth here that we need to realize as well, if you don't already. And that is that people who are in positions of authority over us are put there by God. Yes, we vote. Yes, they run for office. Yes, they collect all these monies to help get them elected. But ultimately, they're there by God's design and for God's purpose. You say, Bill, how in the world do you know that? That can't really be true, can it? Yes, it is true. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, about a man that we know as Pharaoh of Egypt. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, literally, God says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God put Pharaoh in power. God put Cyrus, king of Persia, in power. God put President Barack Obama in power. So we might ask ourselves, okay, that's the theological truth, but what if those human authorities are so corrupt, and what if they make such awful decisions that I can hardly stomach it? Doesn't change the principle, does it? The principle is still there. Submit to every human institution. That's what it says. We can argue it, but we're going to lose the argument. Why? Because it's God's argument. Remember this, too, that the Christians of the first century were on a collision course with the Roman government. That's the context in which Peter writes this. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes about it as well. And it appears that here in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, we're on another collision course with government as Christians. Emperor Nero was the Caesar when Peter and Paul wrote. His real name was Nero Claudius Augustus Germanicus. I know you're not going to remember that. I won't either. He was a grandnephew of Caesar Augustus. He became emperor of Rome when he was 17 years old. He killed his own mother when she objected to his first marriage. 
That's how cruel this man was. And to show you how immoral he was, when his first wife died, he legally married a man, a man that could do that back then in Rome. We thought that was brand new to our society. He legally married a young man named Sporus. It's a historical fact, by the way, that the Roman Empire fell apart over time in large measure because of moral failure from the top down. Edward Gibbon, I don't expect you to read his works, they're six volumes long, wrote a work called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Six volumes. Interestingly, the first volume was written in the year 1776. And here's what he said in summary of his research about the fall of the Roman Empire. I quote, The Roman Empire succumbed to enemy invasions in large part due to the gradual loss of civic virtue among its citizens. Guess what? Same thing's happening now in American society. We're following a similar pattern of moral decay. And it's not just a problem in Washington, D.C., It's a problem in Preston, Idaho, and everywhere else. But that doesn't change the importance of God's critical command. Submit to every human institution. Submit to those in authority over you. This teaching, this principle, is found elsewhere in God's Word. So we can't jump to the conclusion that Peter was on a little personal hobby horse. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, the first four verses. Every person, no one excluded, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. That's the principle I mentioned earlier. And those which exist are established by God, like Pharaoh and Cyrus and President Obama. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it, that human authority, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, that human authority, does not bear the sword for nothing. Again, he says, for it is a minister of God, a servant of God. We don't like to think of it that way when we disagree with our government leaders, but they are servants of God. Whether they recognize it or not, doesn't matter. They are servants of God. And then the book of Titus, chapter 3, the first two verses. Paul tells young Pastor Titus to tell his congregation to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So here's the bottom line. I am commanded, you are commanded, to be submissive to President Obama, to Congress, to the Supreme Court, to Governor Otter here in Idaho, to Mayor Hendrickson here in Preston, to the Franklin County Sheriff's Department and the Preston Police Department. 
Rulers rule in our society by consent of the people. But Christians live victoriously by connection to the Lord of the universe. That's a big difference. A huge difference. Why should we do this? What are the purposes behind this tough principle? Look at verse 15. Two of them are mentioned there. For such is the will of God. That's the first one. The first purpose is that we would magnify and honor and glorify the will of God. The first reason for being submissive to authorities is that's God's will. It's not just something Peter and Paul taught. It's God's will. They didn't invent this, is my point. They were led by the Holy Spirit to teach this because it's God's will. God said it, and we must do it. The second purpose or reason for submitting to government authority is to silence critics. And you know as well as I do, there are lots of critics of the Christian faith out there, especially today. Again, we're on that collision course with an immoral society and a difficult government. By the way, Peter is not being cruel here by speaking of their ignorance. He's not indicating with that word that they are mentally deficient, that they're stupid. What he means is they are ignoring God's will. And they are. And unfortunately, so are some Christians ignoring God's will, even in this matter. So, we can silence their false accusations when they say, for example, that Christians say one thing and do something else? We can silence that. How? By saying and doing the same thing. Very simple. If we're going to be part of turning America back to God, even in baby steps, we've got to walk the talk. We've got to live out what we claim to believe. We've got to practice what we preach. And here's here's a practical point for me and you. We can by the way we conduct ourselves, silence those, for example, who say that Christians kill abortionists. No. There may be a few people who claim to be Christians who've shot an abortion doctor, but Christians don't do that. Or that Christians hate gays. Yes, there are the Westboro Baptist people with their God hates gays signs that make a mockery of biblical Christianity. But that doesn't need to be us. We, by the way we conduct ourselves, can silence those critics. We can be models of loving concern mixed with a godly commitment to change the moral climate of our country. Again, in Romans chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, submission, not only because of wrath, that is, the wrath that the government might mete out to us, but also for conscience sake. Paul would make the point, and Peter would agree, that my submission to authority means I don't have to fear government. I don't have to fear those in authority over me. My conscience is to be my guide. Yes, there is the matter of wrath on the part of government if I do wrong. But if I'm seeking to live a godly life, I don't need to fear that. My conscience will guide me. My God-led conscience will guide me. If we're doing what is right, we don't have to fear government. You know how it is. I've been there and done it. 
We're driving down the road in our vehicle. We pass a uh, strategically parked police car. What do we do? We immediately, immediately look at the speedometer. Right? Come on. We do it. We look at our speedometer. Even if we think we were going the right speed, we look at our speedometer. We don't want to get caught for speeding. There's a way to not get caught for speeding. (laughs) Yeah, don't speed. Pretty basic. Now, I want you to understand something while I'm on this subject. Submission does not equal silence. Submission doesn't mean I never say anything about those in authority over me. That I never have suggestions for them. Or that I voice my opinion. Not at all. We have examples in Scripture of men and women who stood up for what was right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Friends of Daniel. When they were told they had to worship this 90 foot tall statue of the king, said, and I quote Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't have to say anything, but if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. They understood there are consequences for saying, I'm not going to do that. We have to be ready to face the consequences of civil disobedience. If we believe the government's telling us we have to do a certain thing that God says don't do, or that we're not to do, according to the government, what God says we are to do, like preaching, then we have to stand up and say, No! But we better be ready to face the consequences. Daniel was ready. There was an edict handed down in Daniel chapter 6 that everyone for 30 days was to pray to the king, not to God. Here's how Daniel handled that evil command. Daniel 6 verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. His windows were open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. I love that. That's been his practice. And he's not stopping just because the government says you can't pray anymore. So friends, if the government were to say, and I don't see that happening within a week or so, but if the government were to say to Christians, you can't pray anymore, guess what? We're going to have to say, too bad. I believe in prayer. I know God answers prayer. And God has commanded me to pray, and I'm going to pray. But then, (laughs) then be ready to be thrown in jail. That's what it comes to. If the government says to preachers, for example, in light of this recent Supreme Court decision, you have to marry gay people, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not doing it. And I'll have to go to jail, maybe. But that's how serious it is to me. I think of the many people of various nationalities who during World War II 
took in and hid Jews to protect them from the Nazis. They were disobeying government and they had to face the consequences, in some cases death. But I also want you to know we do have certain rights as American Christians and we have every right to use those rights, to claim those rights. I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 in the midst of a series of trials. He was beaten. Beaten. He's a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were allowed trial by jury, just like today in our country. They had to be tried by a jury of their peers. They could not be beaten without just cause and without a trial. So here's what we read in Acts 22. The commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why the crowds were shouting against Paul that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, they uh, tied him down. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and said, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander said, Well, I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. In other words, he paid money to be set free from slavery. Paul said, I was born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that Paul was a Roman because he had put him in chains. We have a right to certain basic rights in our country. And we have a right as Christians to stand up with those rights and say, no, you can't do that. Some expositors refer to this teaching as conscientious subjection. Subjection. We're to obey our government unless they decree that we are to do something that God says don't do. Or unless they tell us that we can't do something that God says He wants us to do. Peter himself had more than one opportunity to stand strong in this very regard. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was preaching and teaching and healing people. The authorities got after him. In Acts 4 verse 18, it says, When they had summoned them, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're going to keep doing it. And they had to be prepared for the consequences. So, what's the total picture? Let's get into that now as we wrap up this message. Verse 16 in 1 Peter 2, Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood, the Christian family. Fear God. Honor the king. What's the total picture? The total picture is that every one of us has to submit at some level. Let me give you a quick example. A student is to submit to their teacher. The teacher must submit to the principal of the school. The principal has to submit to the school board. The school board has to submit to the voters of their particular community. We need to realize that we are where we are. I'm talking now about here in Preston and Cache Valley. By God's 
design. God brought us here together for a purpose. Just like Esther in the Old Testament were here for such a time as this. And so in this context, Peter writes about our freedom. He's not talking about our freedom as American citizens, but the freedom we have in Christ as aliens and strangers. We have a different home, a different purpose for living than the average person. But that freedom to be what God wants us to be is not a license to disobey the government. The Apostle Paul talks about that as well in Galatians 5 verse 13. We won't spend time with that verse, but it also talks about that freedom that we have in Christ, only we're not to use it for negative purposes. And in the context of being American citizens, what it means is I can't use my freedom as an American citizen only to benefit myself. It's to benefit those around me. I can't say to the government, you have no control over me. I don't even live here. Yes, we do, temporarily. And yes, we are to submit to authority. So I should be looking out for the benefit of citizens around me out of love and concern for their souls. The government does have control over us while they are also under the control of God, whether they recognize it or not. Part of the total picture in Romans 13 is when Paul talks about paying our taxes and customs, another word he uses that refers to what we might call sales tax. Paul says you need to pay those as a citizen. So Christians can't be the ones who cheat on their taxes in April. Christians can't be the ones who take money under the table with the idea, I don't have to report this and the government will never know how much I made. No, that's wrong. I'm to pay my taxes. We are to take seriously and carefully the words of Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Ponder those things. Consider those things. Give them weight. That's what the Word of God tells us to do. As Christians, we need to live our lives with excellence, even in how we respond to the government over us at all levels. That brings up some matters for consideration. All kinds of questions come into play when we talk about a Christian as a citizen. Here are just some of those questions. Should Christians pay taxes when we know that the government uses some of that tax money to support pro-choice options like Planned Parenthood? Should Christians serve in the military? Should Christians even bother to vote when we're so disgusted at times with the options we have before us? of those running for public office? Should Christians picket abortion clinics? Should Christians serve in public office even up to the highest office in the land? I'm not going to answer all of those questions this morning. I can give my opinion to any of them if you want. But ultimately, each believer has to settle those issues for themselves. I want to give you the answer to one of those questions because I believe it is answered very clearly in the Bible. And that question, and it's not one of our fervently asked questions for this upcoming series, but it's a good one for today. Should Christians serve in the military? I really believe that if God leads you to that lifelong career, 
or to serve in the military as a way of making a living short term while serving your country. I believe that serving in any branch of the military is an honorable life. I really believe that. Jesus gave high honor to a Roman centurion who came to him for the healing of his servant. The centurion was convinced that Jesus could heal. And Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 10, to those who were following him, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. John the Baptist, some soldiers came to him when he was preaching about repentance and said, How does that fit with our role? What should we do? when it comes to repentance. And here was his answer in Luke 3, verse 14. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And finally, Peter himself witnessed to and led to faith in Jesus Christ a Roman centurion named Cornelius. We'll read about that in Acts chapter 10. My point with those three examples is this. They were not told when they connected with John or, uh, or Jesus or Paul or Peter, they were not told, you need to get out of the military. It's evil. Not at all. There's nothing wrong with serving in the U.S. military if that's where God wants you to be. We need godly Christian men and women in our military. Just like we need godly people in public schools. Just like we need godly people in public office. My point in illustrating that is simply to say that the Bible has answers to our difficult questions. It's part of what being an American citizen is all about. That we can find answers in God's Word. Either by direct teaching or by principle. Here's what I do know. I know that we will not always have leaders that we agree with in policy or in practice. I know there will always be laws that we don't like. I know there will always be taxes we wish we didn't have to pay. But there will also always be God's command to submit to authority, to every ordinance or law of man. And we're to do it for His sake and for His glory. Are uh, leaders in America always going to praise and honor the person who does right? No. Are they always going to deal justly with people who commit crimes? No. But God will always bless those who walk in obedience to Him. Amen? He will. He promises that. And He will always bring to justice those who flaunt His laws and rebel against His teachings. Charles Spurgeon wrote this a long time ago. A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. I like that. Our deeds are important. How we live our lives as American citizens is crucial. We need to pray, not play at being Christians. Our country needs our prayers. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 gives us some indication as to what we're to pray about. In that passage, Paul says, we are to pray for all who are in authority, whether we like them or not. We're to pray for all who are in authority. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life to the glory of God. So, let's pray. 
that our deeds as God's people will speak loudly to those around us about what it is to be a Christian. So that they might know that being a Christian is the best life there is now and for all of eternity. Now that we know this principle, maybe you didn't know it before, that Christians are to submit to every ordinance of man, what are we to do? If we need an example of prayer in this context, you ought to read, I'm not going to read it all this morning, but you ought to read Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. He was in a wicked environment. He was seeking to be a godly man. But in that prayer, he says again and again and again, we have sinned. Not just those people out there. We have sinned, God. Please forgive us. I'll read just one verse, verse 16 of chapter 9 in Daniel. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city of Jerusalem, your holy mountain. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins, our sins and the sins of our ancestors. No wonder when Solomon built the temple for the Lord, and prayed his prayer to God, that God then answered him in Second Chronicles 7.14. And God said to him and to us by application, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God's promise is clear. You pray... You confess sin, and I'm talking to me too. You confess sin, seek my face, get after me, get, get in my face, get with me, get alone with me, and then I'll heal your land and forgive your sins. I'll close with this verse, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Pretty plain, isn't it? It has to start with us. We can't expect ungodly people out there to cry out to God and say, God, we're so sorry that we've been such terrible Americans. To let it get this way. It's our fault. My fault. Your fault. We need to pray. Time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We must take our responsibility seriously. So this morning we're going to sing a prayer. And then I want to encourage you to pray and confess any known sin in your life, as Second Chronicles 7.14 says. And I'll do the same. And then I'll lead us in praying for our great country. You know, I, I still can say this with absolute assurance this is the best country on the planet to live in it is praise God stand with me will you and sing God bless America